Okay, today is May the, wait a minute, I got the wrong, it seems like every other time I'm ripping another one of these off. Okay, today is May the 10th, 2011, and we'll prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The opportunity to name any unconfessed sins to God which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness in giving us another day giving us protection, provision, everything that we need in order to grow in grace and knowledge. We pray that you will help us to focus so that we can file what we learned this evening into long-term memory. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. From time to time we see indicators. The indicators are coming very rapidly these days on the status of our nation and we as a people. No nation can be a strong nation apart from their manufacturing base. That's what made us a world power in World War II. Uh, Our manufacturing got uh, cranked up to be the wonder of the world at that time. Uh, In the quick quotes section of the New American, here's a quote. It says, government roles growing, productive sector shrinking. Today in America, there are nearly twice as many people working For the government, that would be 22.5 million, than in all of manufacturing. This is an almost exact reversal of the situation in 1960 when there were 15 million workers in manufacturing and 8.7 million collecting a paycheck from the government. Stephen Moore, as an uh, economist who writes for the Wall Street Journal, concludes that we have moved decisively from a nation of makers to a nation of takers. So, if you'll take your Bibles and open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll continue with verse 15. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. We'll see up on the board if you want to follow the notes. We have them here. This is Lesson 42, by the way, I was going to uh, make a note of this last Sunday on Mother's Day, but um, it was one year, well, I guess tomorrow, tomorrow will be one year that I started teaching the young people's class. I've been doing that for an entire year now, though. The way I know is I go to the older certain uh, bulletins like a Mother's Day bulletin to get artwork or so forth and there was a note on it for uh, 2010 and it said uh, this Wednesday will be our first young people's class. So shows how fast the time goes. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. We've looked in detail at 
what it means to stand firm for the faith. This is a command, and we saw that there's a right way to do it, and there is a wrong way to do it. And I hope that over the last few years that you have recognized the importance that I put on asking questions. I think that asking questions are absolutely the most powerful way you can connect with people. They have to be engaged. They can't fall asleep on you. They are forced to think. And that's something that people don't do these days, is think. And so when you ask questions, I think that is the best way to stand firm for the faith. You don't get on a soapbox. You don't have a little portable pulpit that you drag around. You just simply talk to folks and ask them questions. What do they think? And then when they answer you, most of the time, there's very few times that people are going to talk with you and tell you what they believe and have it based on the absolute inerrant word of God. So when you ask them what they think, most of the time they're going to give you something that you can recognize right off the bat as not being biblical. So the most powerful thing to do is just simply ask them, well, where did you get that information? Where did you get that idea? Where did that belief come from? And that alone is enough to penetrate a core of a defense, I guess you would say. People usually are not asked that question. Where do you get that idea? Where did that belief come from? And most of the time that is enough for them to want to change the subject because most people don't know anything about the Bible. They're somewhat ashamed of that fact and the easiest way to avoid talking about something that they don't know anything about is to change the subject. But sometimes they don't and by asking them questions you're going to help them see that they have built their belief system on sand. There's really no stability there. So I encourage you and I exhort you to engage people in conversation about things that matter when you are able to do so. And not only is it the best way to stand firm for the faith, but it's also the best way to get the ball rolling. I know a lot of times, for me personally, I'll come in contact with somebody and we're talking about trivia or something uh, that, whatever the issue may be, maybe it's a, a man came over to uh, repair the refrigerator. And he's talking to me about the refrigerator, and I'm thinking about, okay, Lord, how can I break the ice? Uh, not a pun intended with a fr refrigerator, but anyway. Um, what can I do? How can I start the ball rolling to talk about what I really want to talk about, which is you? which is the Lord and, and uh, salvation. And I don't want to come across too obvious, but the Holy Spirit will help you in those, in those somewhat awkward moments. We have some experts here. I love to be around some of these people that do this all the time and it seems so effortless. They just, the Holy Spirit has taught them over the years, it's as natural as can be. And people, before they know it, are caught off guard. And they're thinking were they about things that they've avoided uh, about thinking for a long time. And this is what we need to do. Anyway, standing firm for faith, we, we looked at the fact that we don't argue with people. We don't beg people to see things our way. And <clears throat> we don't. It's not a contest of who wins and who loses. 
A lot of people, especially the adolescent believer who has a little knowledge and thinks he has a lot, but they are zealous and they will try to evangelize the entire world. And anybody that they come in contact with and they see that they say something that is not biblical, they think it is their duty to straighten them out. No, you're wrong. That's not what the Bible says. And they go on. Well, what they've done is alienated that person. The other person is now on the defense. They feel like they have been insulted. And that's not the way to stand firm for the faith. So, again, I say questions are the key. Now, we looked at the and hold to the traditions. Traditions here essentially means doctrine. That's the easiest way to describe it because it's the traditions which you were taught. It's not the traditions that just happen to develop over a period of time. And there's a lot of traditions that people adhere to today. Remember the one we spent about half the time on? I was reading to you about the tradition of beatifying someone and all of the steps you had to go through in order to be, to be beatified. <laughs> That's a lot of effort. That's a lot of time, money, and effort to try to get someone to be beatified. To be beatified. See, being beatified is one of the steps in getting canonized. And if you're canonized, then you get your your name on the list of saints. Well, of course, we know our name is already on the list of saints. It's called the Book of Life. And so this is a lot of tempest in a teapot. It's a lot of just wasted time and effort. But it's a tradition. And that's not to be associated with what we see here in this word. It is talking about the tradition or the doctrine that they were taught. Now, that's what we're going to concentrate on tonight, in which you were taught. The word were taught is didasko, D-I-D-A-S-K-O. It's a verb. It's the heirs passive indicative. Passive voice is very important here. The aorist is a cumulative aorist, which emphasizes the results of, the, of taking in this, this uh, doctrine, this tradition. And it's an indicative mood, which means it's a reality. This is the way it's done. And it, the, the word means to instruct or tell someone what to do, to impart knowledge with the highest possible development of the pupil as the goal. The passive voice means that the instruction must be received. Now, there's a difference between seeking instruction, which would be in the active voice. I assume that all of you here are here because you are seeking instruction. You want to learn the Word of God. And that took an active part as far as you are concerned. I mean, you had to get dressed. You had to put it on your schedule, you had to get yourself here, and now you're here, you're all filled with the Holy Spirit, hopefully, and now the Holy Spirit is your mentor, He's the one that's making this spiritual phenomenon understandable to you, and that's all in the active voice, but the real teaching that takes place is in the passive voice, it's what you are receiving, you, you can't receive uh, things, you can't receive teaching in the active voice, you can only do it in the passive voice. And the passive voice suggests humility. You can't go anywhere and learn anything from any teacher unless you are humble, unless you agree 
that you can learn something from this person, that they know more than you do about any given subject, and that you are ready to give it a fair and open hearing. Apart from that, there is no passive voice. Nothing takes place. And that's why a lot of people do not grow spiritually because I guess the, the bottom line is arrogance. People over the years have gained tidbits of information here or there, and in their own soul it's a hodgepodge of data in their brain. In their soul, they've accumulated so many uh, so-called facts, values, and beliefs. And they're comfortable with that. But whenever they, whenever they are under the teaching of someone and they are told that something is contrary or different to what they have believed in the past or something that they have held dear or close to them, that's when the passive voice must really come into play. You have to have an open mind. And a lot of people don't. A lot of people will go to this church or any other church. It might be the first time they go or maybe they'll go for the second time and they're, they have their antenna out. They are really listening because they want to see, does this church agree with what I believe? And that's the wrong idea to begin with is to go to a church, and the reason you're going is to hear what you've always been taught, not to have an open mind and with, the, with the opportunity to learn. Without that open mind, it doesn't happen. And there are people who shut down. I can see it. You don't stand 20 years behind a pulpit and not be able to read people. And I've seen people who were with me, and I'm not talking about any of you. I'm talking about, for the most part, visitors. And I can see them that they're with me at a, up to a certain point, And then I'll teach something that uh, they don't agree with. And I can see it in their countenance. For one thing, they quit concentrating. I've seen people who were taking notes and before the service was over, they were counting the little triangles, uh, little diamonds in the deal there. What happened? Well, I crossed the line. I said something that they didn't agree with. And I, as I was elaborating on it, they weren't listening. They were out of town. They tuned out. And that's what I'm saying is which you were taught. These are traditions which they learned. This is doctrine that they learned because they were humble and they had an open mind. And that's, what the, that, that's the, the substance of what God uses in order for us to learn. It's not that I'm more intelligent it's not that I'm superior to anyone here. It's just that God in His sense of humor gave me the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. Uh, people, <laughs> I wish you could be with me when I go to one of my high school reunions. And they say, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. And they just blurt out laughing right out loud. <laughs> You're kidding! <laughs> I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> so... It's not any of those things. It's just this is the way that God has designed it. And he has blessed me with great preparation in the original languages and systematic theology. And I spend a, a tremendous amount of time preparing for each message because I take this job uh, very seriously. It's a huge responsibility. I'm not 100% correct, and there's no pastor that ever has been. But I give it my best. And then it's up to you. It's not, it's not even my delivery 
I wish my delivery was better. I wish I could read better. I wish I had a deeper voice and would speak more clearly sometimes. None of that really matters. What really matters is, is that God is going to use some vessel, some man to teach you, and it's up to you whether you are going to hold to the traditions which were taught. Because I didn't make up the traditions. I didn't make up the doctrine. I'm just teaching what has already been passed down all these, all these years. But it's the same for us. The, the Thessalonians would, would get a letter and they would read it. We have a Bible and we learn from what uh, they learned. Believers should be good Bereans according to Acts 17.11 and examine things taught in the Scripture. An open mind does not mean that you are not to have questions from time to time. I can remember going to church and I had a particular mindset and the pastor said something that I, I just could not believe that he said what he did. I was really offended. It wasn't anything over a moral question. It was a doctrinal issue. But I started thinking, all right, I've, I've humbled myself, listened to this man. I have learned so much from him. I'm not just going to turn it off now just because I have an emotional reaction to what he said. And I started actually researching and looking at what, what he said. And it, it took me about three days before I finally came to the conclusion, it looks like he's right. And I didn't like it. I don't like to be wrong, especially on an issue that I had thought was, I had nailed down. I don't have to worry about that doctrine. I, I've got that one clear. And we may all get to that point from time to time. So what I'm telling you is in Acts 17:11, it was the Bereans. Remember when Paul left Thessalonica and he went to Berea? And he says they were... Uh, Paul, in his uh, writings, uh, uh, well, actually, this is Luke in Acts, was writing about uh, the Bereans, and he was lauding them. He was praising them that they listened to what was, was said, and then they went to the Scriptures to find out if it was so. And I encourage all of you to do that. I've said in the past, if there's ever an issue that you... Uh, do not agree with or you just don't understand or you just don't accept, whatever it is, I would much rather you come to me and say, look, this is what you taught, but this is the way I see it. Can you, and, and we'll reason together. We'll go to the Scriptures. And I have told you, I, it very, it's, it's possible that I'm wrong and you're right. Maybe you will do me a favor and I can guarantee you I will look at it with an open mind. We will discuss it. But I expect the same thing from you. would be an open mind. Because if we don't agree, there's only a couple of possibilities. First possibility that comes to mind is, you're wrong and I'm right. <laughs> but that's, first, that's the first thing that comes in any of our minds. Now, of course, maybe uh, you're right and I'm wrong. Or it could be, we're both wrong. But one thing for sure, we both can't be right. So if you come in a spirit of let's get to the bottom of this, let's resolve this, most of the time it can be resolved. 
But that's not what happens. More times than not, someone will take offense and they will leave and I will hear about it a year or two later. Well, they didn't like what you said about so-and-so. And I think, why didn't they just come to me and say, hey, um, I don't understand this or I don't agree with you on this or whatever it is. So good Bereans look at the Scriptures. I have exhorted you, I have encouraged you to read your Bibles. You'd be surprised at what happens when you just read your Bibles. A mature Christian just doesn't go into his Bible just at church or Bible class. He yearns for the Word. And as much as I've studied the Bible, there's hardly a time <clears throat> when I go and study that I don't learn something. I'm, and I'm talking about something I didn't know before. I'm going to give you something tonight that I learned today that I, I never knew before, and I thought it was really neat. And it, that happens so often. Paul did not want believers to be deceived either in the present, which is verses 3 and 7, or in the last days, which was a great, when a great deceiver would come on the scene. See, he's preparing them. He says, stand firm for the faith because the great deceiver, the Antichrist, is coming. They must not be deceived by false prophecy, which is in verse 2, or by false reports or forged letters, which we find in verse 2 and 15. There is always a blanket of deception. The last thing that Satan and his minions want is for a believer to be squared away with doctrine. They want, the, they want it to be doubts. They want the, he, the demons want there to be confusion. Even in Thessalonica, there was forged letters and there were Judaizers and there was people who would go by Paul and try to, to muddy the waters. So we have to keep straight, stay in the Word. So we have the last phrase here in verse 15, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. The mode of communication is not the issue. It wasn't then and it's not now, whether it was face-to-face, word by by word or by letter. The accuracy of the communicator is the issue. The Apostle Paul, Paul's veracity and authority was intact whether he was speaking face-to-face -face or communicating through epistles. Now, epistles, of course, means letters. And not all of Paul's letters were a part of the canon. And that was all sorted out. God made sure that what he wanted to be part of the canon of Scripture would be and there's a lot of people that want to go into splitting hairs on various, uh, they call it, uh, variants in Scripture. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I know Michael and probably Vidal are for, to a degree. A variant is when there is a, a discrepancy in the manuscript. It might be something that was added or something that was left out or something that was disputed about a letter or a word or something. But for the most part, that is minuscule. God has kept intact His magnificent Word for us. And so it doesn't matter where you, how you get it. The main thing is that you get it and that you get it accurately. Face-to-face -face teaching is the most profitable. Let me say this. There's, there's a dynamic that works face-to-face -face that you can't get anywhere else. And I don't know how to explain it to you. I don't know. that, that it, You should know that for yourself. 
that when you are here among fellow believers and the Word of God is being taught, there is a special dynamic that works that you can't get when you're listening to a tape or if you're on the Internet or if you're reading a book. It's just there. And so we are fortunate that we can meet together as a church body, as a group of believers, and obey the command to grow in grace and knowledge. There are so many believers out there that wish they had that. I get emails, I get information all the time from people that say, we so desire to have a pastor in our area, a local church, that we could go and fellowship together, learn the Word. And so many of them across this nation can't, they're not doing that. And it's unfortunate because there are not that many Bible churches where you have the Word exegeted properly and you have believers that are there for the right purpose. They're not there as a social club. They're not there in order to have all the programs for the kids. They're there to grow in the Word because that's what we have to have. That's why we're here. So it's, if, if face-to-face is possible, that's the best. But believers can grow spiritually through websites on the Internet, radio and TV broadcasts, CDs, DVDs, MP3s, podcasts, and even books. The Word of God is powerful in all of those formats. But I think the most powerful is face-to-face. Now, verse 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Now, this is two verses, but it's actually one sentence in the Greek. So we start out with, Now may our Lord... Jesus Christ Himself, and God our Father. Now, I'll show you something here. I don't do this too often, but I did today. This is the Greek order of the words. Here it is here. Atos de ha kurios hemon, Iesu Christos kai theos ha pater humon. Now, in English, it starts out Himself. I'm reading it in the the Greek words in English so that you can see the order. Himself, now, the Lord, our Jesus Christ, and God, the Father, your. That's one of the things that makes Greek so hard, by the way, is in English, word order is imperative. In Greek, not so much. Himself is thrown up here, the first word in the sentence. Now, the reason that it is up in the front of the sentence is because that's the way they would emphasize something. So in this sentence, the thing that is emphasized is that it's the Lord Himself. And then you have the post-positive de. This is the uh, conjunction translated now. And it always comes after the first word, never before. That's why they call it the post-positive. It always comes as the second word in the sentence. And so we, we learn something just from the word order here that Paul was emphasizing that it was Jesus Christ himself that is going to uh, have a part to play in the rest of the sentence. I think that's what I say here. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father accomplished what the remaining of the sentence reveals. We find this same construction in the next chapter, 
in the next chapter, we're going to have the same thing in, in chapter 3. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. I didn't give you the Greek here, but you can probably tell. Now is the de, which would come the second, the second word. May the Lord of peace himself. Guess where himself falls in this sentence? Right there, first word. So they would put that at the beginning of the sentence in order to emphasize it. So they're saying the Lord does not delegate this to be done. He does this himself. That's why it is being emphasized. Paul was offering a prayer for divine help and encouragement for the Thessalonians to stand firm and to hold to the tradition which they had been taught. Here you have it here. Now may our Lord... Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. This is a prayer. This is addressing God the Father and God the Son with a request. May, may he do this himself. And so that brings up, <clears throat> excuse me, we all share a responsibility of mutual concern and mutual intercession for one another as we face the challenges of this life. You can pretty well analyze your spiritual life by what your prayer life is like. If you have very little prayer in your life, your relationship with God is suffering drastically. And I, I know that we all have to struggle from time to time to set something aside, take our concentration off the details of life and actually focus and go to the throne room of God and pray. When we went to the, I don't know what you call it, uh, they call it retreat. I don't like the word retreat because I don't like to retreat. Uh, I call it an outing. We went to the outing uh, this Saturday. And one of, the, one of the things they had, there was about 45 guys there. And we were all sitting out under the trees and so forth, and they had um, a prayer. Uh, Pastor Cliff Beveridge started the prayer, and then he says, anybody that wants to pray can pray. You don't have to pray uh, out loud. We're all doing this together, though. And to hear those men was, was very uplifting. And what they were doing is what this verse is essentially doing, what Paul was doing for his fellow believers, we need to hold one another up to the throne room of God in the grace throne room of prayer. We can't do that too much. We are the royal family. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, I came from a church where that was pretty much disparaged. We didn't call each other brother and sister, and we don't do it here. I don't think that's necessary. I, can't, I was reared in a, in a denomination where everybody at church was brother and sister. And then when you saw, saw them anywhere else, it was, hey, Joan, hey, Fred. But at, at church, oh, hello, Brother Joan. Hello, Brother uh, Fred. Uh, not Brother uh, Joan. <laughs> sister Joan. <laughs> so, and I, I, it just kind of seemed fake to me. And so there are places that would avoid that. We don't, I, we don't avoid it. It's just that we call each other by our names. But we are brothers 
in the Lord and sisters in the Lord. And we are to, to treat each other that way with the ultimate of love and consideration and prayer because every single person here has a lot on their plate and they need prayer. I need prayer. You need prayer. And I'm not talking about the kind of prayer that I used to give when I was in that denomination. And Lord bless everybody in church. <laughs> oh, that's easy. But what is that? And I always, we are, I, hopefully, well, you'll never hear this around here. I, I don't. I hope I don't. And I would always end the prayer, and forgive us of all of our sins. I thought, why don't I just forgive the whole world their sins? Why just this group? You see, our God is a personal God. And that's very impersonal to say, help everybody in the church or forgive us all of our sins. I don't think God, or you could say, forgive me of all my sins. I don't want to speak out of turn here. I can't say this dogmatically, but my own opinion is I don't think God forgives sins when you say, forgive me of all my sins. Because it doesn't really take that much humility to say, forgive me all of my sins, because you don't have to name them. But when you have to name it, then it's personal. Then it takes humility. I think that just saying I'm sorry is appropriate in some times, in some cases. But in some cases, when there's something that is really egregious, that it's, it's more powerful, more humbling to say, I wronged you. Not only am I sorry, but I seek your forgiveness. Now that takes humility. Because you don't know whether they're going to forgive you or not. Now, with God, we don't have to ask Him to forgive us because that's not what the mechanic is. What He has told us in 1 John 1, 9 and well as other places is what we are to do is acknowledge our sin. But He's not saying, it doesn't mean, well, I don't know how good I was today. God, I probably flubbed up somewhere along the way, so I go ahead and forgive me of that, whatever I've done. Okay? Okay, we're good to go, right? No. Because there's no humility there. We certainly don't deserve to be forgiven just because we acknowledge our sins, but we will not be forgiven unless we are humble. That's the whole thing with God. That's the whole thing in life is humility. God makes war against the arrogant. And he gives grace to the humble. You can't learn unless you're humble. God is not going to forgive you unless you're humble. I didn't really mean to get on this big forgiveness kick, but I just thought of something that I saw on Channel 8. It was two weeks ago, and it was talking about forgiveness, and it showed the Jews in the Holocaust and the Jews that were in concentration camps and then had to go back and live in the cities where they were locked up in these concentration camps and live among the people that either participated or, or knew and did nothing about them being in these torture camps. And it was about forgiveness. And there was a lot of good points that were brought up with regards to forgiveness. My contention is that you cannot forgive someone if they don't want to be forgiven. 
Now, that isn't, that's not to say that you carry a grudge in your soul or that you wish ill upon them or that uh, you, you have hatred towards them. We are to love them unconditionally. But to forgive someone that does not want forgiveness, does not desire it or ask for it, is an act in futility. It doesn't really change anything. This one woman that was talking about in Germany, there were certain places where they were uh, people would come back and they would uh, say that we forgive you for the concentration camps. The people never requested forgiveness. And yet the Jews that experienced this would go through and they would tell the town, uh, I forgive you, when they didn't ask for forgiveness. And you know what they had within two, two months? They had people from that town goose-stepping through the state, through the streets, carrying swastikas because they thought, well, it, it must not really matter that much. They, were, they didn't see the heinous things that they had done. So when we're talking about praying for other believers, forgiving other believers... I hope you do that. I hope you pray for me because I pray for, for y'all. I pray for y'all individually by name. And let me tell you, I've got a lot to do and I've got a lot of prayers. Now, I don't pray for every one of you every time I pray. But when I have the time and I go to prayer, I'm thinking of y'all. And I go through, I don't know what all y'all are going through. I hear, well, they had a, they're dealing with this or they're dealing with that. If I don't know, I just say whatever they're dealing with, pray that they will use the doctrine that they've learned. That's what we need to do for each other, and this is what Paul is doing. Okay, so here's what we have so far. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort. Now we're going to... It's right here. Who has loved us? Underline love there. Love is the, probably the most misunderstood and over-talked about word in the English language. Who has loved us? Now, the Greek word here is agapao. It's a participle, aorist active. Now, in this paragraph, I'm going to tell you what I learned today, and I'm passing it on to you, okay? And this comes from Zodiades. Uh, the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament. Agapao, to esteem, love, indicating a direction of the will and finding one's joy in something or someone. It differs, differs from phileo, and the word, the number there is just a strong number. It differs from phileo, and you all know that phileo is a more personal type of love. It differs in phileo, to love, indicating feelings, warm, affection, and the kind of love expressed by a kiss. And look at this Greek word for kiss, philema. To love personally is phileo, and to kiss is philema. I just thought that was really neat. I didn't know that kiss was that linked to personal love in the Greek, which is phileo. If you want to see, that's spelled P-H-I-L-E-M-A, philema. It means to love, 
to regard with favor, goodwill, and benevolence. Now, in the ancient world, this, this is not talking about necessarily a romantic, passionate kiss between a male and female. This is talking about the kind of kiss that they had in greeting brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, we don't do that here. and uh, I'm glad we don't. I guess if I lived in the Mideast, it wouldn't be so bad. But I try to keep my distance away from, oh, scraggly beards and stinky guys. I don't have, <laughs> you know, I just, you, we just keep our distance. And that's the way we, I think it ought to be. But back then, they, the Bible tells us to greet one another with a kiss. And you've seen them, they kiss on both sides of the cheek in the Mideast. That's, that's, a, that's a kiss. That's philema. Because they have phileo. One of the misconceptions so prevalent today is that God loves us because of who and what, or who we are and because of what good we do. And then you see, and I have an exclamation point after this, wrong. God loves us based on who and what He is. Remember that? You, how many times have you heard that from me? He always loves us with a maximum amount of love. And I said, always. He doesn't love us more at one time than He does another. His love is totally unaffected when we are arrogant, indifferent, unfaithful, hateful, disobedient, or even defiant. On your worst day, when you were the worst pill that you have ever been, when you were a big pain in the neck, and nobody wanted to be around you because you were just off. My uh, dad used to say, off on a toot. Now, off on a toot means you're not only in a bad mood, you, you, you just make everyone around you miserable. On that day that was your worst day ever, God did not love you even a centimeter less than He ever has loved you. Now, that's hard for us as humans to get our head around because... If you're that way around me, I'm going to have a hard time loving you. Well, what I'll probably want to do is love you from afar. The aorist tenth indicates that he loved us for a long time. In fact, he loved us in eternity past, even before he created the earth. We cannot fathom the depth of the great love that God has for us. We can't do it. We can't even start to do it. The, whoever the person is who has the greatest understanding of all time about love, Cavens, he can't understand love any more than my cat can. And my cat is mixed up. You go and pet him, and he's purring, and the next minute he's biting your hand. Now, what does he know about love? I'm over here, and I'm, oh, hi, kitty, how you doing? Next thing I know, he's got a hold of my hand. He doesn't do that much to me. Carrie's got bites on her hand. He does it to me one time. <laughs> he wouldn't get that close again. But you see what I'm talking about. We just, in our limited capacity, can't even begin to understand how the God of the universe would sacrifice His own Son, who is also God, on the behalf of enemies who are sinners. He did the most for us when we were still unbelieving sinners and His enemies. Here's Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God demonstrated His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
You heard this last communion Sunday. I make a point in saying that every communion so you'll understand when we're taking the cup that he didn't do this after you were part of his family. This was in you when you were still alienated from Christ, unbelievers who were enemies. That's when Christ went to the cross. Much more, now the much more there is an a fortiori. That's that Latin phrase. And it's a comparison. Now, if he will do that, then it stands... If he will do that, just think, he can do something that's much easier than that. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, referring to the spiritual death of Christ on the cross, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We're not only going to be saved from the wrath of God from talking about the bowels of the lake of fire. It is my contention that he's talking about we'll be saved from the wrath of God when the day of the Lord begins. Now, that's all I need to say. And if you've been with us, if you've been with this study, I don't have to go back and start talking about the day of the Lord. Isn't that great? How would you like for me to go back and start drudging through, <laughs> trudging through that again? So, if, he can, if he's going to demonstrate his love towards us, that, well, we yet sinners, Christ died for us, then now it's, easy, it's no big deal for, him to be, for us to be justified. That's much easier for us to accomplish. And we shall be saved by the wrath of God through him. For if while we were his enemies, and that's a first-class conditional clause. Guys, you can look it up. It's first class, meaning if, and it's true. We were his enemies. We, are, uh, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. What we have here again, another a fortiori, that Latin phrase, with greater sense. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Powerful verse. Sometimes the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is called the unspeakable gift. The idea that God would become man and die on a cross for sinful mankind is so phenomenal that it would be unthinkable and unspeakable to any rational creature. Who would ever even suggest or have such a thought? Not only does he offer us this unspeakable gift, and it is a gift, it would be unspeakable for someone to say, God is going to send his own son. God is going to become incarnate and go to the cross, pay for our sin. I can assure you that there was no person in the universe, no creature, not even the angels, had a hint that, God loved, that God's love would go that far. I, I imagine that there was a huge universal gasp when the angels figured out what God's plan was. So not only did he give us the unspeakable gifts, here's, here's a few other things that he, he has done for us. I don't have a lot of time, so I'm not going to be able to go through this whole list, but I'll go through a few. He adopted us into his royal family. He adopted us into his royal family. Adoption is a big thing, is it not? Adoption means legally a child becomes part of a family. Their name is changed. They are considered just as much a part of the family as those who were born biologically into that family. Now remember, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, while we were His enemies. And when we believe in His Son, which is 
totally non-meritorious. One of the first things that happens, I say one of the first things, it all happens simultaneously. But I like to think of it as one of the first things is that he adopted us into his family. But not only his family, his royal family. We become part of his family. Now just think about that for a moment. You know what that also means? Is that we are going to live with him. Have you ever had a visitor that came for a while and you were ready for them to leave whenever they left? Have you ever had that? Now, we get along pretty good in this church because we're not living with each other. When someone comes to live with you, it's another ball game, isn't it? You get to really know that person. You get to see them warts and all. And we're talking about the God of the universe who owns the splendor of heaven. He adopts us into His royal family. We are now royalty because we are what? Two words. In Christ. Not only that, we're going to live with Him. And we're not going to live with Him for a week, two weeks, a year. How long are we going to live with Him? He's going to take puny man, creatures, lower than angels, and he adopts us into his family, into his royal family, and invites us to live with him forever. We wouldn't have to go any further to demonstrate the, the, the matchless love of God, would we? I love all of y'all, but I don't love you enough for you to come live with me. Especially not forever. <laughs> Let me tell you, you wouldn't want to live with me anyway. It's hard enough to live with your own family, isn't it? This isn't an amen, amen in church, because I know I'd hear a lot, Amen, brother! <laughs> it's just that's the way it is. The people that you love the most, the person that you love the most, if you're married, is probably sitting right next to you. And as wonderful as they may be, it's not so easy to live with them all the time, is it? Huh? If there wasn't such a thing as unconditional love and the filling of the Holy Spirit, the Word that teaches us how to live together in harmony, there's not always harmony, is there? So for God to take us sinful creatures, lower than angels, Adopt us into his royal family and invite us to live with him forever. A fortiori. With much greater reason. See, but that really is easier for him to do than the highest, which is Christ going to the cross. He gave us eternal life. We have to have eternal life. God lives eternal. These bodies wear out. They're wearing out at a faster rate than I ever thought they would wear what is happening to our bodies anyhow, huh? Let's take a, a hiatus on gravity for a while. Let's just have a time out here. I mean, I don't know. I don't guess y'all, maybe y'all know what I'm talking about. Every time I see my mirror, I, I, I walk by the mirror and look on you. Huh? What is going on? And guys don't have, you know, all the 
razzmatazz to fix you up. What you see is what you get. I bet there's a guy here got his makeup on. Well, he ascribed to us his own perfect righteousness. And I have to say, if I had perfect righteousness, I wouldn't give it to anybody. I would want to lord it over the whole world. I want to let everyone know I'm more righteous than you are and you're not getting it. And if you were honest, you'd probably do the same thing. I mean, some of you look pretty nice, but if, 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 if I guess it is somewhat uh, blasphemous to say if we were God. But I know myself. I might give you half of my righteousness. I might give you a little bit. But you're not getting as much as I'm going to have that as the trump card. Here, God graciously gives us His own righteousness. Can He give us 65% and be okay? What percent righteousness must we have in order to have a good standing before God? It's got to be 100%, doesn't it? Can you see the love and grace in that? Giving us His own righteousness? And I hope you've reached this point a long time ago that you're no longer struggling trying to be approved by God for your own righteous deeds. See, that's what the unbelievers do. That's what most of the people in this world is doing. And what a relief that we can stand before God, warts and all, and He sees us as perfectly righteous because He sees us through Jesus Christ. Because we're in Christ. Gives us His own righteousness. How valuable is that? How valuable is it never to have to struggle or contend with the idea of whether I'm going to be accepted by God or not based on what I do or who I am? While we were yet sinners and His enemies, He died for us. He appointed us to, his, to be His royal ambassadors. That's a big deal if you were appointed in this earth. If somebody points, appoints you ambassador to some country, it's a, it's a formal big affair. And all of women, you're the next one is priests. I'll just show you. He made us priests so that we can go straight to him. Women never had that before. We're in a special time frame. He didn't have every every believer as ambassadors that represented him. Everywhere you go, everything that you say, and everything that you do, you're doing it as a representative of the Most High. Now, carry that one around with you for a while. Sometimes we take our our, uh, ambassador card off, don't we? Think I'll set that aside. I want to get down and dirty for a while. I can always pick it up later and put it back on. We're always his ambassadors. He made us priests so that we can go straight to him. Aren't you glad we don't have to go to some priest, some other person to get to God. We actually do go through another person. It's our high priest. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't want to go to some person and grab, gab about all my shortcomings. We don't have to sacrifice any animals. Jesus Christ made the sacrifice. Listen, if we could just transport all of us right now back to the time of the tabernacle and we were under the Mosaic Law, 
and we'd have had to haul animals around and go through all of the over 600 laws that they had and go before priests and all the other things, I think we would better appreciate what we have and the great love that God has demonstrated towards us. Let's see, I might do one more. God gave us spiritual gifts. He gave us spiritual gifts. Do you have a spiritual gift? Yes, you do. Every one of us has a spiritual gift. It is a gift. That means that God has placed you in His plan. You are an integral part of His overall plan to bring Himself the glory that He deserves. And if you use that gift, then you're only going to be doing what you're supposed to do anyway, but He's still going to reward you. Remember I tell you to do that to your children? When your children do what they're supposed to do, reward them. Chances are they're going to strive to do it again. God is the ultimate parent. He gives us what we don't deserve. I wish I could go on with the list. I'll, fi I'll finish it next time. But didn't we go through enough to where we can say, what a God, what love is this? Let's close. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of who and what you are and that you are even mindful of us, much less that you adopt us into your royal family, that you give us eternal life, your own righteousness, that we are royal ambassadors, priests that can go straight to the throne room of God and speak to you. We're so thankful for this. You've given us spiritual gifts a part to play in your overall plan. And this is just barely scratching the surface. More than anything, we want to live this, leave this place tonight with a sense of appreciation and in awe of who you are and that you would always love us regardless of who we are or what we have done. Help us all to have more appreciation and be ever mindful of that, for we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.